Hey everybody, Sean here. Just a couple of quick notes before we get going. I've got a guest appearance that's available right now on the Explorers podcast, which you should check out. That's a very cool show, and the host, Kate, is awesome. Also, a quick heads up that you're hearing a patron-only edition of the show here as kind of a preview for what's coming this off-season for patrons. If you like what you hear and want to throw your support behind stories of your and yours, head over to patreon.com slash syypodcast. There's also another patron-only project coming soon that I think you'll really enjoy. You'll hear more about that in the coming weeks on social media or if you head over to the Patreon. And again, that's patreon.com slash syypodcast. That link is also in the show notes. Enjoy. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to the first patron-only off-season episode of Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and today we will make our first of several visits to the infamous Bly Manor. Of course, with this being a patron-only episode, you guys already know where to find the show on social media and all that jazz, and I'm pretty sure each of you has already left a review, so let's get right down to business. Today, we'll be starting the first story I've done that will be released in multiple installments. And of course, you know by now that you'll be hearing part one of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Henry James was born in April of 1843 in New York City to a wealthy and well-educated family. His father was a well-known theologian, a lecturer, and a philosopher who had inherited money from his own father, and James's mother also came from a wealthy family. Due to this abundance, James was able to travel at an early age, and he was tutored by teachers all over the world, Geneva, London, Paris, Bologna, and Bonn, Germany, for example. In the family's travels, their longest stays were in France, where James became fluent in French. In 1862, James began attending Harvard Law School, but he realized after the first year that law school was not for him, and he opted to pursue an education in literature. His first short story, A Tragedy of Error, would be published two years later. James's career is generally thought of in three phases— the first phase, in which he employed a more direct and simplistic style, seemed largely to focus on the differences between Europe and the United States. This phase is said to have ended with his most popular novel, The Portrait of a Lady. The second phase generally featured shorter works, though some of his less popular novels were also published during this period, and it's said to have ended toward the end of the 19th century, a little after the publication of The Turn of the Screw. The third phase is generally considered his major phase, and it kicked off with three novels at the beginning of the 20th century in The Wings of the Dove, The Ambassadors, and The Golden Bowl. James's early work tended toward realism, whereas his later work was based in early modernism, and he is seen as a key figure in that general literary transition. Now, I am in no way a literary scholar, and I mostly know him as a writer of some cool kind of unsettling psychological ghost stories which, of course, we will explore starting today. James spent most of his time in Europe, despite being an American citizen, and when the First World War broke out, he was not happy with the American government for not getting involved in the war. At that point, he decided to become an English citizen, which he did a year before his death from pneumonia in 1916. The Turn of the Screw was published in serial format, kind of like this podcast will be, in 1898 in Collier's Magazine. Collier's was an American magazine that ran on a weekly basis between April of 1888 and January of 1957. There was also a brief revival of the magazine in 2012. It was known for a few things during its almost 60-year run. 
For our purposes, of course, there was the fiction, which Colliers ran in spades. They ran short stories in addition to serialized novels and novellas from the likes of Ray Bradbury, Willa Cather, Sinclair Lewis, J.D. Salinger, Kurt Vonnegut, and Roald Dahl, who was one of my favorite authors. Aside from fiction, though, Colliers was a pioneer publication in investigative journalism. Among the well-known stories that Colliers covered were the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, which was covered by Jack London, and an expose called Is Chicago Meat Clean, which was written by Upton Sinclair in 1905. That, of course, is the same Upton Sinclair who would publish The Jungle a year later, which would lead to Congress enacting regulations to ensure sanitary conditions in facilities that processed meat. If you've never read The Jungle, it's worth a look. The conditions of those factories were pretty terrible. So Collier's was a part of that early investigative journalism movement in the early 20th century in the U.S., and in fact, the magazine was unsuccessfully sued several times. The fact that the lawsuits were unsuccessful resulted in more publications joining that trend, which Theodore Roosevelt referred to as muckraking. Collier's declined in popularity following World War II, moving from weekly to bi-weekly in 1953 and publishing their final issue on January 4th of 1957. Now, before I get into today's presentation, I want to talk a little bit about the way the turn of the screw is written. This is not like any other story I've done so far on the show, and not just because of the length. It's written in a style that's going to take some getting used to, but don't let that scare you away. What I mean is, the prose is a bit, I'll say, dense. But I don't want that to come off as a bad thing. The language is actually quite lovely, especially for a ghost story. But it might take a little bit before you're into it. Trust me though, it's worth it for this story. The other thing I'll bring up here is a bit of formatting. The story starts off with a prologue. Essentially, we're introduced to the person who's going to be telling us the story. The story itself is basically a journal written by a governess. So one would think, well, you need a female narrator for that story, but I have a loophole. The way the prologue sets it up, Mr. Douglas, who is in possession of the journal, is reading it aloud to the assembled group. So, that's how I justified being a male narrator for this story. It's not like the yellow wallpaper, where it was necessary for me to enlist my good friend and patron of the show, Moxie, from Your Brain on Facts. One final programming note, as this will be published in installments, I won't be doing an extensive intro to each episode. I'll say a brief hello, let you know if there's any news concerning the show, and we'll just get right into that installment. And speaking of getting to the story, let's do that right now. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James The story had held us round the fire sufficiently breathless but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome, as on Christmas Eve in an old house a strange tale should essentially be, I remember no comment uttered until somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. The case, I may mention, was that of an apparition in just such an old house as he had gathered us for the occasion, an appearance of a dreadful kind to a little boy sleeping in the room with his mother and waking her up in the terror of it, waking her not to dissipate his dread and soothe him to sleep again, but to encounter also herself before she had succeeded in doing so, the same sight that had shaken him. It was this observation that drew from Douglas, not immediately, but later in the evening, 
a reply that had the interesting consequence to which I will call attention. Someone else told a story not particularly effective, which I saw he was not following. This I took for a sign that he had himself something to produce, and that we should only have to wait. We waited, in fact, till two nights later. But that same evening, before we scattered, he brought out what was in his mind. I quite agree, in regard to Griffin's ghost, or whatever it was, that its appearing first to the little boy at so tender an age adds a particular touch. But it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved the child. If the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? We say, of course, someone exclaimed, that they give two turns, also that we want to hear about them. I can see Douglas there before the fire to which he had got up to present his back, looking down at his interlocutor with his hands in his pockets. Nobody but me till now has ever heard. It's quite too horrible. This, naturally, was declared by several voices to give the thing the utmost price, and our friend, with quiet art, prepared this triumph by turning his eyes over the rest of us and going on, It's beyond everything. Nothing at all that I know touches it. For sheer terror? I remember asking. He seemed to say that it was not so simple as that, to be really at a loss how to qualify it. He passed his hand over his eyes, made a little wincing grimace. For dreadful, dreadfulness. Ooh, how delicious, cried one of the women. He took no notice of her. He looked at me, but as if instead of me, he saw what he spoke of. For general uncanny ugliness and horror and pain. Well then, I said, just sit right down and begin. He turned round to the fire, gave a kick to the log, watched it an instant. Then, as he faced this again, I can't begin. I shall have to send to town. There was a unanimous groan at this, and much reproach, after which, in his preoccupied way, he explained, The story's written. It's locked in a drawer. It has not been out for years. I could write to my man and enclose the key. He could send down the packet as he finds it. It was to me in particular that he appeared to propound this, appeared almost to appeal for aid, not to hesitate. He had broken a thickness of ice, the formation of many a winter, had had his reasons for a long silence. The others resented postponement, but it was just his scruples that charmed me. I adjured him to write by the first post and agree with us for an early hearing. Then I asked him if the experience in question had been his own. To this, his answer was prompt. Oh. Thank goodness, no. And is the record yours? You took the thing down? Nothing but the impression. I took that here. He tapped his heart. I've never lost it. Then your manuscript is in old, faded ink, and in the most beautiful hand. He hung fire again. A woman's. She has been dead these twenty years. She sent me the pages in question before she died. They were all listening now, and of course there was somebody to be arch, or at any rate to draw the inference. But if he put the inference by without a smile, it was also without irritation. She was a most charming person, but she was ten years older than I. She was my sister's governess, he quietly said. 
She was the most agreeable woman I have ever known in her position. She would have been worthy of any whatever. It was long ago, and this episode was long before. I was at Trinity, and I found her at home on my coming down the second summer. I was much there that year. It was a beautiful one, and we had in her off hours some strolls and talks in the garden. Talks in which she struck me as awfully clever and nice. Oh yes, don't grin. I liked her extremely, and am glad to this day to think that she liked me too. If she hadn't, she wouldn't have told me. She had never told anyone. It wasn't simply that she had said so, but that I knew she hadn't. I was sure I could see. You'll easily judge why when you hear. Because the thing had been such a scare? He continued to fix me. You'll easily judge. He repeated. You will. I fixed him too. I see. She was in love. He laughed for the first time. <laughs> you are acute. Yes, she was in love. That is, she had been. That came out. She couldn't tell her story without its coming out. I saw it, and she saw I saw it. But neither of us spoke of it. I remember the time and the place, the corner of the lawn, the shade of the great beaches, and the long, hot summer afternoon. It wasn't a scene for a shudder, but oh. He quitted the fire and dropped back into his chair. You'll receive the packet Thursday morning? I inquired. Probably not till the second post. Well then, after dinner. You'll all meet me here. He looked us round again. Isn't anybody going? It was almost the tone of hope. Everybody will stay. I will. And I will. Cried the ladies whose departure had been fixed. Mrs. Griffin, however, expressed the need for a little more light. Who was it she was in love with? The story will tell, I took upon myself to reply. Oh, I can't wait for the story. The story won't tell, said Douglas. Not in any literal, vulgar way. More's the pity, then. That's the only way I ever understand. Won't you tell, Douglas? Somebody else inquired. He sprang to his feet again. Yes tomorrow. Now I must go to bed. Good night. And quickly catching up a candlestick, he left us slightly bewildered. From our end of the great brown hall, we heard his step on the stair, whereupon Mrs. Griffin spoke. Well, if I don't know who she was in love with, I know who he was. She was ten years older, said her husband. Raison de plus? At that age? But it's rather nice, his long reticence. Forty years, Griffin put in. With his outbreak at last. The outbreak, I returned, will make a tremendous occasion of Thursday night. And everyone so agreed with me that, in the light of it, we lost all attention for anything else. The last story, however incomplete, unlike the mere opening of a serial, had been told. We handshook and candlestuck, as somebody said, and went to bed. I knew the next day that a letter containing the key had, by the first post, gone off to his London apartments. But in spite of, or perhaps just on account of, the eventual diffusion of this knowledge, we quite let him alone till after dinner, till such an hour of the evening, in fact, as might best accord with the kind of emotion on which our hopes were fixed. Then he became as communicative as we could desire, and indeed gave us his best reason for being so. We had it from him again before the fire in the hall, as we had had our mild wonders of the previous night. It appeared that the narrative he had promised to read us really required for a proper intelligence a few words of prologue. Let me say here distinctly, to have done with it, 
that this narrative, from an exact transcript of my own made much later, is what I shall presently give. Poor Douglas, before his death, when it was in sight, committed to me the manuscript that reached him on the third of these days, and that on the same spot with immense effect he began to read to our hushed little circle on the night of the fourth. The departing ladies, who had said they would stay, didn't, of course, thank heaven, stay. They departed, in consequence of arrangements made in a rage of curiosity, as they professed, produced by the touches with which he had already worked us up. But that only made his little final auditory more compact and select, kept it round the hearth, subject to a common thrill. The first of these touches conveyed that the written statement took up the tale at a point after it had in a manner begun. The fact to be in possession of was therefore that his old friend, the youngest of several daughters of a poor country parson, had, at the age of twenty on taking service for the first time in the schoolroom, come up to London, in trepidation, to answer in person an advertisement that had already placed her in brief correspondence with the advertiser. This person proved, on her presenting herself for judgment, at a house in Harley Street that impressed her as vast and imposing, this prospective patron proved a gentleman, a bachelor in the prime of his life, such a figure as had never risen, save in a dream or an old novel, before a fluttered anxious girl out of a Hampshire vicarage. One could easily fix his type. It never happily dies out. He was handsome and bold and pleasant, offhand and gay and kind. He struck her inevitably as gallant and splendid, but what took her most of all and gave her the courage she afterwards showed was that he put the whole thing to her as kind of a favor, an obligation that he should gratefully incur. She conceived him as rich, but as fearfully extravagant, saw him all in a glow of high fashion, of good looks, of expensive habits, of charming ways with women. He had, for his own town residence, a big house filled with the spoils of travel and the trophies of the chase, but it was to his country home, an old family place in Essex, that he wished her immediately to proceed. He had been left, by the death of their parents in India, guardian to a small nephew and a small niece, children of a younger, a military brother, whom he had lost two years before. These children were, by the strangest of chances for a man in his position, a lone man without the right sort of experience or a grain of patience, very heavily on his hands. It had all been a great worry, on his own part doubtless, a series of blunders. But he immensely pitied the poor chicks, and had done all he could, had in particular set them down to his other house, the proper place for them being, of course, the country, and kept them there from the first, with the best people he could find to look after them, parting even with his own servants to wait on them, and going down himself whenever he might to see how they were doing. The awkward thing was that they had practically no other relations, and that his own affairs took up all his time. He had put them in possession of Bly, which was healthy and secure, and had placed at the head of their little establishment, but below stairs only, an excellent woman, Mrs. Groves, whom he was sure his visitor would like, and who had formerly been made to his mother. She was now housekeeper, and was also acting for the time as a superintendent to the little girl, of whom, without children of her own, she was, by good luck, extremely fond. There were plenty of people to help, but of course the young lady who should go down as the governess would be in supreme authority. She would also have in holidays to look after the small boy, who had been for a term at school, young as he was to be sent, but what else could be done, and who, as the holidays were about to begin, would be back from one day to the other. There had been for the two children at first a young lady whom they had had the misfortune to lose. She had done for them quite beautifully. She was a most respectable person, till her death 
the great awkwardness of which had precisely left no alternative but the school for little miles. Mrs. Groves, since then, in the way of manners and things, had done as she could for Flora, and there, further, a cook, a housemaid, a dairywoman, an old pony, an old groom, and an old gardener, all likewise thoroughly respectable. So far had Douglas presented his picture when someone put a question, "'And what did the former governess die of? Of so much respectability?' <laughs> Our friend's answer was prompt. "'That will come out. I don't anticipate.' "'Excuse me. I thought that was just what you are doing.' "'In her successor's place,' I suggested, "'I should have wished to learn if the office had brought with it "'necessary danger to life.' Douglas completed my thought. She did wish to learn, and she did learn. You shall hear tomorrow what she learned. Meanwhile, of course, the prospect struck her as slightly grim. She was young, untried, nervous. It was a vision of serious duties and little company, of really great loneliness. She hesitated, took a couple of days to consult and consider. But the salary offered much exceeded her modest measure, and on a second interview she faced the music. She engaged. And Douglas, with this, made a pause that, for the benefit of the company, moved me to throw in, the moral of which was, of course, the seduction exercised by the splendid young man. She succumbed to it. He got up, and, as he had done the night before, went to the fire, gave a stir to a log with his foot, then stood a moment with his back to us. She saw him only twice. Yes, but that's just the beauty of her passion. A little to my surprise on this, Douglas turned round to me. It was the beauty of it. There were others, he went on, who hadn't succumbed. He told her frankly, all his difficulty, that for several applicants the conditions had been prohibitive. They were somehow simply afraid. It sounded dull, it sounded strange, and all the more so because of his main condition. Which was? That she should never trouble him, but never, never, neither appeal nor complain nor write about anything, only meet all questions herself, receive all monies from his solicitor, take the whole thing over, and let him alone. She promised to do this, and she mentioned to me that, when, for a moment, disburdened, delighted, he held her hand, thanking her for the sacrifice, she already felt rewarded. But was that all her reward? One of the ladies asked. She never saw him again. Oh, said the lady, which, as our friend immediately left us again, was the only other word of importance contributed to the subject till, the next night, by the corner of the hearth, in the best chair, he opened the faded red cover of a thin, old-fashioned, gilt-edged album. The whole thing took indeed more nights than one, but on the first occasion the same lady put another question. What is your title? I haven't one. Oh, I have, I said. But Douglas, without heeding me, had begun to read with a fine clearness that was like a rendering to the ear of the beauty of his author's hand. Chapter One I remember the whole beginning as a succession of flights and drops, a little seesaw of the right throbs and the wrong. After rising in town to meet his appeal, I had at all events a couple of very bad days, found myself doubtful again, felt indeed sure I had made a mistake, 
In this state of mind, I spent the long hours of bumping, swinging coach that carried me to the stopping place at which I was to be met by a vehicle from the house. This convenience, I was told, had been ordered, and I found, toward the close of the June afternoon, a commodious fly in waiting for me. Driving at that hour on a lovely day through a country to which the summer sweetness seemed to offer me a friendly welcome, my fortitude mounted afresh, and as we turned into the avenue, encountered a reprieve that was probably but a proof of the point to which I had sunk. I suppose I had expected or had dreaded something so melancholy that what greeted me was a good surprise. I remember as a most pleasant impression the broad, clear front, its open windows and fresh curtains and the pair of maids looking out, I remember the lawn and the bright flowers and the crunch of my wheels on the gravel and the clustered treetops over which the rooks circled and cawed in the golden sky. The scene had a greatness that made it a different affair from my own scant home, and there immediately appeared at the door with a little girl in her hand a civil person, who dropped me as decent a curtsy as if I had been a mistress or a distinguished visitor. I had received in Harley Street a narrower notion of the place and that, as I recalled it, made me think the proprietor still more of a gentleman, suggested that what I was to enjoy might be something beyond his promise. I had no drop again till the next day, for as I was carried triumphantly through the following hours by my introduction to the younger of my pupils, the little girl who accompanied Mrs. Groves appeared to me on the spot a creature so charming as to make it a great fortune to have to do with her. She was the most beautiful child I had ever seen, and I afterward wondered that my employer had not told me more of her. I slept little that night. I was too much excited, and this astonished me too, I recollect, remained with me, adding to my sense the liberality with which I was treated. The large, impressive room, one of the best in the house, the great state bed as I almost felt it, the full-figure draperies, the long glasses in which for the first time I could see myself from head to foot, all struck me like the extraordinary charm of my small charge, as so many things thrown in. It was thrown in as well, from the first moment, that I should get on with Mrs. Groves in a relation over which, on my way, in the coach, I fear I had rather brooded. The only thing, indeed, that this early outlook might have made me shrink again was the clear circumstance of her being so glad to see me. I perceived within half an hour that she was so glad, stout, simple, plain, clean, wholesome woman, as to be positively on her guard against showing it too much. I wondered even then a little why she should not wish to show it, and that with reflection, with suspicion, might of course have made me uneasy. But it was a comfort that there could be no uneasiness in connection with anything so beatific as the radiant image of my little girl, the vision of whose angelic beauty had probably more than anything else to do with the restlessness that before morning made me several times rise and wander about my room to take in the whole picture and prospect, to watch from my open window the faint summer dawn, to look at such portions of the rest of the house as I could catch, and to listen while in the fading dusk the first birds began to twitter, for the possible recurrence of a sound or two, less natural and not without, but within, that I fancied I had heard. There had been a moment when I believed I recognized faint and far the cry of a child. There had been another when I found myself just consciously starting, as that the passage before my door, of a light footstep. But these fancies were not marked enough to be thrown off, and it is only in the light, or the gloom, I should rather say, of other and subsequent matters that they now come back to me. To watch, teach, form little Flora would too evidently be in the making of a happy and useful life. 
It had been agreed between us downstairs that after this first occasion I should have her as a matter of course at night, her small white bed being already arranged to that end in my room. What I had undertaken was the whole care of her, and she had remained, just this last time, with Mrs. Groves only as an effect of our consideration for my inevitable strangeness and her natural timidity. In spite of this timidity, which the child herself in the oddest way in the world had been perfectly frank and brave about, allowing it without a sign of uncomfortable consciousness with the deep, sweet serenity indeed of one of Raphael's holy infant to be discussed, to be imputed to her, and to determine us, I feel quite sure she would presently like me. It was part of what I already liked Mrs. Groves herself for, the pleasure I could see her feel in my admiration and wonder as I sat at supper, with four tall candles and with my pupil, in a high chair and a bib, brightly facing me between them over bread and milk, there were naturally things that in Flora's presence could pass between us only as prodigious and gratified looks, obscure and roundabout allusions. "'And the little boy, does he look like her? Is he too so very remarkable?' One wouldn't flatter a child. "'Oh, miss, most remarkable, if you think well of this one.' and she stood there with the plate in her hand, beaming at our companion, who looked from one of us to the other with placid heavenly eyes that contained nothing to check us. "'Yes, if I do, you will be carried away by the little gentleman. Well, I think that is what I came for, to be carried away. I'm afraid, however,' I remember feeling the impulse to add, "'I'm rather easily carried away. I was carried away in London.' I can still see Mrs. Gross's broad face as she took this in. In Harley Street? In Harley Street. Well, miss, you're not the first, and you won't be the last. Oh, I had no pretension, I could laugh, to being the only one. My other pupil, at any rate, as I understood, comes back tomorrow? Not tomorrow, Friday, miss. He arrives as you did by the coach, under the care of the guard, and is to be met by the same carriage. I forthwith expressed that the proper as well as the pleasant and friendly thing would be, therefore, that on the arrival of the public conveyance I should be in waiting for him with his little sister, an idea in which Mrs. Groves concurred so heartily that I somehow took her manner as a kind of comforting pledge, never falsified, thank heaven, that we should on every question be quite at one. Oh, she was glad I was there. What I felt the next day was, I suppose, nothing that could be fairly called a reaction from the cheer of my arrival. It was probably at the most only a slight oppression produced by a fuller measure of the scale as I walked round them, gazed up at them, took them in, of my new circumstances. They had, as it were, an extent and mass for which I had not been prepared, and in the presence of which I found myself freshly a little scared, as well as a little proud. Lessons in this agitation certainly suffered some delay. I reflected that my first duty was, by the gentlest arts I could contrive, to win the child into some sense of knowing me. The only way to be sure that I spent the day with her out of doors. I arranged with her, to her great satisfaction, that it should be she, she only, who might show me the place. She showed it step by step, and room by room, and secret by secret, with droll, delightful, childish talk about it, and with the result in half an hour of our becoming immense friends. Young as she was, I was struck throughout our little tour with her confidence and courage with the way in empty chambers and dull corridors on crooked staircases that made me pause, and even on the summit of an old machicolated square tower that made me dizzy, her morning music, her disposition to tell me so many more things than she asked, rang out and led me on.
I have not seen Bly since the day I left it, and I dare say that to my older and more informed eyes it would now appear sufficiently contracted. But as my little conductress, with her hair of gold and her frock of blue, danced before me round corners and pattered down passages, I had the view of a castle of romance inhabited by a rosy sprite, such a place as would somehow, for diversion of the young idea, take all color out of storybooks and fairy tales. Wasn't it just a storybook over which I had fallen a doze in a dream? No, it was a big, ugly, antique, but convenient house, embodying a few features of a building still older, half-replaced and half-utilized, in which I had the fancy of our being almost as lost as a handful of passengers in a great drifting ship. Well, I was, strangely, at the helm. Chapter 2 This came home to me when, two days later, I drove over with Flora to meet, as Mrs. Groves said, the little gentleman, and all the more for an incident that, presenting itself the second evening, had deeply disconcerted me. The first day had been, on the whole, as I have expressed, reassuring, but I was to see it wind up in keen apprehension. The postbag that evening, it came late, contained a letter for me which, however, in the hand of my employer I found to be composed but of a few words enclosing another, addressed to himself, with a seal still unbroken. This I recognize as from the headmaster, and the headmaster's an awful bore. Read him, please. Deal with him. But mind you don't report. Not a word. I'm off. I broke the seal with a great effort, so great a one that I was a long time coming to it took the unopened missive at last up to my room and only attacked it just before going to bed. I had better have let it wait till morning, for it gave me a second sleepless night. With no counsel to take, the next day I was full of distress, and it finally got so the better of me that I determined to open myself at least to Mrs. Groves. What does it mean the child's dismissed his school? She gave me a look that I remarked at the moment, then visibly, with a quick blankness, seemed to try to take it back. But aren't they all? Sent home, yes, but only for the holidays. Miles may never go back at all. Consciously, under my attention, she reddened. They won't take him. They absolutely decline. At this, she raised her eyes, which she had turned from me. I saw them fill with good tears. What has he done? I hesitated. Then I judged best simply to hand her my letter, which, however, had the effect of making her, without taking it, simply put her hands behind her. She shook her head, sadly. Such things are not for me, miss. My counselor couldn't read. I winced at my mistake, which I attenuated as I could, and opened my letter again to repeat it to her. Then, faltering in the act and folding it up once more, I put it back in my pocket. Is he really bad? The tears were still in her eyes. Do the gentlemen say so? They go into no particulars. They simply express their regret that it should be impossible to keep him. That can only have one meaning. Mrs. Groves listened with dumb emotion. She forbore to ask me what this meaning might be, so that presently, to put the thing with some coherence, and with the mere aid of her presence to my own mind, I went on, that he's an injury to the others. At this, with one of the quick turns of simple folk, she suddenly flamed up. Master Miles, him an injury? 
There was such a flood of good faith in it that, though I had not yet seen the child, my very fears made me jump to the absurdity of the idea. I found myself to meet my friend the better, offering it on the spot sarcastically, to his poor little innocent mates. "'It's too dreadful,' cried Mrs. Groves, "'to say such cruel things. Why, he's scarce ten years old!' "'Yes, yes, it would be incredible.' She was evidently grateful for such a profession. "'See him, miss, first, then believe it.' I felt forthwith a new impatience to see him. It was the beginning of a curiosity that, for all the next hours, was to deepen almost to pain. Mrs. Groves was aware I could judge of what she had produced in me, and she followed it up with an assurance. "'You might as well believe it of the little lady. Bless her,' she added at the moment. "'Look at her!' I turned and saw that Flora, whom ten minutes before I had established in the schoolroom with a sheet of white paper, a pencil, and a copy of nice round O's, now presented herself to view at the open door. She expressed in her little way an extraordinary detachment from disagreeable duties, looking to me, however, with a great childish light, that seemed to offer it as a mere result of the affection she had conceived for my person, which had rendered necessary that she should follow me. I needed nothing more than this to feel the full force of Mrs. Groves's comparison, and catching my pupil in my arms, covered her with kisses, in which there was a sob of atonement. Nonetheless, the rest of the day I watched for further occasion to approach my colleague, especially as toward the evening I began to fancy she rather sought to avoid me. I overtook her, I remember, on the staircase. We went down together, and at the bottom I detained her, holding her there with a hand on her arm. I take what you said to me at noon as a declaration that you've never known him to be bad. She threw back her head. She had clearly by this time and very honestly adopted an attitude. Oh, I've never known him. I don't pretend that. I was upset again. Then you have known him. Yes, indeed, miss. Thank goodness. On reflection, I accepted this. You mean that a boy who never is, is no boy for me? I held her tighter. You like them with the spirit to be naughty. Then, keeping pace with her answer, So do I, I eagerly brought out. But not to the degree to contaminate, to contaminate, my big word left her at a loss. I explained it. To corrupt. She stared, taking my meaning in, but it produced in her an odd laugh. Are you afraid he'll corrupt you? She put the question with such a fine, bold humor that, with a laugh, a little silly, doubtless, to match her own. I gave way for the time to the apprehension of ridicule. But the next day, as the hour for my drive approached, I cropped up in another place. What was the lady who was here before? The last governess? She was also young and pretty. Almost as young and almost as pretty, miss, even as you. Ah, then I hope her youth and beauty helped her. I recollect throwing off. He seems to like us young and pretty. Oh, he did, Mrs. Groves assented. It was the way he liked everyone. She had no sooner spoken indeed than she caught herself up. I mean, that's his way, the master's. I was struck. But of whom did you speak first? She looked blank, but she colored. Why, of him. Of the master. Of who else? There was so obviously no one else that the next moment I had lost my impression of her having accidentally said more than she meant, and I merely asked what I wanted to know. Did she see anything in the boy that wasn't right? She never told me. 
I had a scruple, but I overcame it. Was she careful, particular? Mrs. Groves appeared to try to be conscientious. About some things, yes, but not about all. Again, she considered. Well, miss, she's gone. I won't tell tales. I quite understand your feeling, I hastened to reply, but I thought it, after an instant, not opposed to this concession to pursue. Did she die here? No, she went off. I don't know what there was in this brevity of Mrs. Groses that struck me as ambiguous. Went off to die? Mrs. Groves looked straight out of the window, but I felt that, hypothetically, I had a right to know what young persons engaged for Bly were expected to do. She was taken ill, you mean, and went home. She was not taken ill so far as appeared in this house. She left it, at the end of the year, to go home, as she said, for a short holiday, to which the time she had put in had certainly given her a right. We had then a young woman, a nursemaid, who had stayed on and who was a good girl and clever, and she took the children altogether for the interval. But our young lady never came back, and at the very moment I was expecting her, I heard from the master that she was dead. I turned this over. But of what? He never told me. But please, miss, said Mrs. Groves, I must get to my work. Chapter 3 her thus turning her back on me was fortunately not, for my just preoccupations, a snub that could check the growth of our mutual esteem. We met after I had brought home little Miles more intimately than ever on the ground of my stupefaction, my general emotion. So monstrous was I then ready to pronounce it that such a child as had now been revealed to me should be under an interdict. I was a little late on the scene, and I felt as he stood wistfully looking out for me before the door of the inn at which the coach had put him down, that I had seen him, on the instant, without and within, in the great glow of freshness, that same positive fragrance of purity in which I had, from the first moment, seen his little sister. He was incredibly beautiful, and Mrs. Groves had put her finger on it. Everything but a sort of passion of tenderness for him was swept away by his presence. What I then and there took him to my heart for was something divine that I have never found to be the same degree in any child, his indescribable little air of knowing nothing in the world but love. It would have been impossible to carry a bad name with a greater sweetness of innocence, and by the time I had got back to Bly with him I had remained merely bewildered, so far that is as I was not outraged, by the sense of the horrible letter locked up in my room in a drawer. As soon as I could compass a private word with Mrs. Groves, I declared to her that it was grotesque. She promptly understood me. You mean the current charge? It doesn't live an instant. My dear woman, look at him. She smiled at my presentation to have discovered his charm. I assure you, miss, I do nothing else. What will you say, then? She immediately added. In answer to the letter? I had made up my mind. Nothing. And to his uncle? I was incisive. Nothing. And to the boy himself? I was wonderful. Nothing. She gave with her apron a great wipe to her mouth. Then I'll stand by you. We'll see it out. We'll see it out, I ardently echoed, giving her my hand to make it a vow. She held me there a moment, then whisked up her apron again with her detached hand. Would you mind, miss, if I used the freedom to kiss me? <laughs> no. I took the good creature in my arms, and, after we had embraced like sisters, felt still more fortified and indignant. 
This, at all events, was for the time, a time so full that, as I recall the way it went, it reminds me of all the art I now need to make it a little distinct. What I look back at with amazement is the situation I accepted. I had undertaken with my companion to see it out, and I was under a charm, apparently, that could smooth away the extent and the far and difficult connections of such an effort. I was lifted aloft on a great wave of infatuation and pity. I found it simple in my ignorance, my confusion, and perhaps my conceit, to assume that I could deal with a boy whose education for the world was all on the point of beginning. I am unable even to remember at this day what proposal I framed for the end of his holidays and the resumption of his studies. Lessons with me, indeed, that charming summer, we all had a theory that he was to have, but now I feel that for weeks the lessons must have been rather my own. I learned something, at first, certainly, that had not been one of the teachings of my small, smothered life. Learned to be amused, and even amusing, and not to think for the morrow. It was the first time, in a manner, that I had known space and air and freedom. All the music of summer and all the mystery of nature. And then there was consideration. And consideration was sweet. Oh, it was a trap. Not designed, but deep, to my imagination, to my delicacy, perhaps to my vanity, to whatever in me was most excitable. The best way to picture it all is to say that I was off my guard. They gave me so little trouble. They were of a gentleness so extraordinary. I used to speculate, but even this with a dim disconnectedness, as to how the rough future, for all futures are rough, would handle them and might bruise them. They had the bloom of health and happiness, and yet, as if I had been in charge of a pair of little grandees, of princes of the blood, for whom everything to be right would have to be enclosed and protected, the only form that in my fancy the after years could take for them was that of a romantic, a really royal extension of the garden and the park. It may be, of course, above all, that what suddenly broke into this gives the previous time a charm of stillness, that hush in which something gathers or crouches. The change was actually like the spring of a beast. In the first weeks, the days were long. They often, at their finest, gave me what I used to call my own hour. The hour when, for my pupils, tea-time and bedtime having come and gone, I had, before my final retirement, a small interval alone. Much as I liked my companions, this hour was the thing in the day I liked the most. And I liked it best of all when, as the light faded, or rather, I should say, the day lingered and the last calls of the last birds sounded in a flushed sky from the old trees, I could take a turn into the grounds and enjoy, almost with a sense of property that amused and flattered me, the beauty and dignity of the place. It was a pleasure at these moments to feel myself tranquil and justified, doubtless perhaps also to reflect that by my discretion, my quiet good sense and general high propriety, I was giving pleasure, if he ever thought of it, to the person to whose pressure I had responded. And that I could, after all, do it proved even a greater joy than I had expected. I dare say I fancied myself, in short, a remarkable young woman, and took comfort in the faith that this would more publicly appear. Well, I needed to be remarkable to offer a front to the remarkable things that presently gave their first sign. It was plump one afternoon in the middle of my very hour. The children were tucked away and I had come out for my stroll. One of the thoughts that, as I don't in the least shrink now from noting, used to be with me in these wanderings was that it would be as charming as a charming story, suddenly, to meet someone. 
Someone would appear there at the turn of a path and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask more than that. I only asked that he should know. That was exactly present to me, by which I mean the face was, when on the first of these occasions, at the end of a long June day, I stopped short on emerging from one of the plantations and coming into view of the house. What arrested me on that spot, and with a shock much greater than any vision had allowed for, was the sense that my imagination had, in a flash, turned real. He did stand there, but high up, beyond the lawn, and at the very top of the tower to which on that first morning little Flora had conducted me. This tower was one of a pair, square, incongruous, crenellated structures, that were distinguished for some reason, though I could see little difference, as the new and the old. They flanked opposite ends of the house, and were probably architectural absurdities, redeemed in a measure indeed by not being wholly disengaged, nor of a height too pretentious, dating in their gingerbread antiquity from a romantic revival that was already a respectable past. I admired them, had fancies about them, for we could all profit in a degree, especially when they loomed through the dusk by the grandeur of their actual battlements. Yet it was not at such an elevation that the figure I had so often invoked seemed most in place. It produced in me this figure in the clear twilight, I remember, two distinct gasps of emotion, which were sharply the shock of my first and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had precipitately supposed. There came to me thus a bewilderment of vision of which, after these years, there is no living view that I can hope to give. An unknown man in a lonely place is a permitted object of fear to a young woman privately bred, and the figure that faced me was a few seconds more assured me, as little anyone else I knew as it was the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street. I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, in the strangest way in the world, had, on the instant, and by the very fact of its appearance, become a solitude. To me, at least, making my statement here with a deliberation with which I have never made it, the whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if, while I took in what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again, as I write, the intense hush in which the sounds of the evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost for the minute all its voice. But there was no other change in nature unless indeed it were a change that I saw with a stranger sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought with extraordinary quickness of each person that he might have been and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance quite long enough for me to ask myself with intensity who then he was, and to feel, as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants more became intense. The great question, or one of these, is, 
afterward i know with regard to certain matters the question of how long they have lasted well this matter of mine think of what you will of it lasted while i caught at a dozen possibilities none of which made a difference for the better that i could see in their having been in the house and for how long above all a person of whom i was in ignorance it lasted while i just bridled a little with the sense that my office demanded that there should be no such ignorance and no such person. It lasted while this visitant, at all events, and there was a touch of the strange freedom, as I remember, in the sign of familiarity of his wearing no hat, seemed to fix me from his position with just the question, just the scrutiny through the fading light that his own presence provoked. We were too far apart to call each other, but there was a moment at which, at shorter range, some challenge between us, breaking the hush, would have been the right result of our straight mutual stare. He was the one of the angles, the one away from the house, very erect as it struck me, and with both hands on the ledge. So I saw him as I see the letters I form on this page. Then, exactly, after a minute, as if to add to the spectacle, he slowly changed his place. Passed, looking at me hard all the while, to the opposite corner of the platform. Yes, I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me, and I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the other corner, but less long, and even as he turned away, still, markedly, fixed me. He turned away. That was all I knew. I hope you've enjoyed this special patron-only episode of Stories of Your and Yours. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now, full disclosure here, I'm still working on recording future installments, so I'm not exactly sure what the schedule is going to be or how I'm going to split things up, but I will have something for you at least monthly from now until the beginning of Season 3, which will be, well, your guess is as good as mine right now, but it's coming sometime. Huge thank you once again one more time to Dan, Kayla, Moxie, Megan, Ken, Stacy, and Nick. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for supporting the show. This is for you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll enjoy the future installments. If you have any notes for me, if you have anything you want to say, you know how to do it. Shoot me an email. Go to the Patreon. Shoot me a message that way. Either way, you know I'm around. So, until next time, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening, and thank you so much for your support. We'll see you next time. <laughs>